0: Hey everyone, James from Glee Books in Sydney here. This weekend, Words and Nerds is brought to you by us. If you're missing being amongst the shelves of Glee Books, we're trying to bring a little bit of the shop to you. We're running virtual tours on our Instagram, and our resident storyteller Rachel is holding digital rhyme time and story time sessions on Mondays and Fridays at 10am on Instagram Live give us a follow either at GleeBooks or at Glee Books underscore kids to keep up to date with our recommendations and other goings on in the bookshop. While we're closed for browsing, we're still open for click and collect orders and we're also offering free posts within 10 kilometres of our Glee shop or free delivery for orders over $70 nationwide. You can place your order via our website, which is at www.gleebooks.com.au. We can't wait to see you all again once lockdown is over, so please stay safe.
1: Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Danny V. Today, I'm super excited to welcome Suzanne Gervais. Suzanne's acclaimed books are widely endorsed by the Cancer Council, New South Wales, Variety and the Children's Hospital, Westmead. She is an ambassador for Room to Read, bringing education to the children of the developing world, a role model for books in homes, taking books to disadvantage and Indigenous children in Australia, and a literacy ambassador for many campaigns. Suzanne is also regional advisor for the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, promoting the community of writers and illustrators in Australia and internationally. She has been awarded the Lifetime Social Justice Literature Award by the International Literacy Association and Order of Australia, and was nominated for the Astrid Lindgren Memorial Award. Welcome, Suzanne. And what I can't believe is that it's taken me this long to get you on the podcast. Well, obviously, you're waiting for the best book. Absolutely. And it was lovely to meet you in person at Nat Amor's book launch. Well,
2: when I was dressed as a rocker, and as you can see, I was very tasteful in pink with my hair in a psycho sort of situation. My secret information, my daughter did it. Because I said, I'm going to be a rocker. And he said, I'll fix you. (laughs) That was
1: it. Well, you looked wonderful. And I also had my mini me and we were dressed up as rockers as well. It was a fantastic book launch. Um, Very well enjoyed. Now, Suzanne, can you please tell us Heroes of the Secret Underground? Can you give us an elevator pitch for this wonderful book?
2: It's the year 2000, International Year of Peace. Three kids growing up in the suburbs of Sydney. They grew up in a big old historic hotel which creaks and rattles run by their Hungarian grandparents. And there's secrets and mysteries. But the grandparents don't want to share the past, as many adults don't, because they want to keep their kids safe. But as Louis and her brothers discover, seek to discover the secrets of the past, they climb higher and higher to the top of the majestic boutique hotel where they time slip to Budapest 1944, where they meet their grandparents as kids and together uncover the secrets of the past to bring
1: justice to the present and the future. Oh, I have so many questions just from that beautiful elevator pitch, Suzanne. But what I am really fascinated about our grandparents. I think it's a really special relationship, but I think we get the opportunity to only meet our grandparents when they're in the later stages of life and eventually unfortunately we usually lose them. And the idea of meeting them and knowing them when they're young is just such a fascinating thing for me to wrap my head around because we only know a very very tiny part of our grandparents' lives and and who they are. Was this in your head as you were writing this book?
2: Yes. Look, my parents, I have enormous admiration for them, despite the fact they argued and they had all the dramas of normal life. They were refugees. They went through horrible atrocities and they came to this country. And it was hard for them and they were silent. But I knew there were dark secrets and heroism and I tried to talk to them about it, but they were always closed and they sort of lied, lied by omission and lied just generally because they didn't want to give their kids that history of atrocity. But you know what? They can't always lie. I remember my father saying something to me. I was about eight years old and I don't know why he said it. It must have just come into his mind. He said, oh, in the war at night he would take food and supplies to the children's houses. And he then said, and his eyes glazed over, I always remember it, and he said, one night there was no one in the children's house. And I said to my dad, where were the children? And he never answered. I said, please, Dad, where were the children? And even though I was an eight-year-old child, I always knew there was a dark mystery and I wanted to find those children and that was part of the journey of Heroes of the Secret
1: Underground. Wow it's fascinating and as you're talking I'm, I'm talking about thinking about my own grandparents my own opa who very similar story to your parents came um, you know from Indonesia as refugees in a Japanese war camp and then moved to Holland and then came as refugees to Australia and They never talked about being in a Japanese war camp and you wanted to know so much about the history and your own, I guess, historical trauma, but they never wanted to talk about it. And you had to respect that. But now that both my grandparents are gone, I find this such great regret that I didn't know more about their lives. But you have to respect the fact that it was it was very painful for them and they may not want to revisit that time.
2: It was, but it's more than pain. It's part of their heroism. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, they've come to this new place. Imagine you've lost everything to start a new life without language, without English, yep. and yep. they just didn't want to give that trauma, their trauma, to their children. Yeah, and I think sometimes by blocking it, they were able to manage their new life because it's really hard to retain hope but the thing is they don't get it kids are smart they know everything <laughs> we knew there was secret yes and they didn't get it and you know what keeping secrets is like a lie and until we find them how can we go forward we must understand the past mm. to have a different
1: future mm. we must yeah, no, I agree with all of that. And you're right, when you're a kid, there are hints to it. You know, there are some things that they were really, you know, strong about, like you could never waste any food, you know, they're absolutely oh. fanatical about it. And now I get that. You know, as a kid, you're like, oh, I just don't want to eat my dinner. But now you go, oh, I understand that because it was such a scarce resource, you know, when they were in their war camp. So perspective, I think. It is. And, you know, I always wondered about
2: that too. And when people came over, the overfeeding, yes, exactly. startling. <laughs> I mean, how many cabbage rolls does one have to eat?
1: (laughs) It's too much. I remember that. If you didn't have four helpings, you were ill and something was wrong with you. (laughs) It was absolutely
2: dramatic. It came from scarcity and I told, and it included so many of my parents' hinty stories are in my Heroes of the Secret Underground. And I remember my father saying They had a little salami, not much, but they kept that salami and he had a pen knife and he would just cut a slice so that everyone
1: wasn't starving.
2: So it's interesting, isn't Mm, it?
1: It It is. It's very interesting. And I I am also really fascinated about, um, you know, I've read about trauma being uh brought down in through generations on a cellular level and that really interests me too because when you think about you know your parents or your grandparents you wonder how much of that trauma has actually um stayed with you in your genetics unknowingly i find that completely fascinating completely off topic but i find it fascinating
2: i actually believe that i believe that um trauma genetically changes yeah yeah and you know um I was doing some research on Romanian orphans. It was terrible. They put these kids who were disabled and um, orphans in these horrible, horrible places in Romania, and they were run by very, very cruel staff. And these children were there, you know, often all their lives. But when they were adopted by often Western people, the trauma of where they came from, their first seven years led to a permanent disability that no education could actually eradicate. Yeah. And so I do believe in the passing on, especially in the early years of that yeah. genetic.
1: Trauma. yeah absolutely no i believe it too and you see you know there's a lot of research being done it, and i always sort of was invest i was investigating my anxiety i guess because i have the same sort of nervous energy as my my oma had and i was like i wonder if that you know I, don't know I don't know where anxiety comes from probably a range of places but then it did occur to me you know wonder if those things are, are you know given to you throughout a hereditary on that silly level so it, it fascinates me really does and let's get into something a bit fun tell me about the time slip because this is a fantastic idea and i I just found so much joy in this, particularly meeting your grandparents as young people. I love this so much.
2: It is extraordinary. And, you know, you look at the, you know, your grandma, my, you know, my mother, her eyes were this emerald blue, uh, emerald green. And you come down and suddenly you see this girl with these emerald green eyes and you think, but could it be my mother? Could it be my grandmother? And that's really an interesting premise. But, Writing a time slip, let me make it clear. I have never written a time slip in my life (laughs) and I will never write one again. (laughs) So you say, oh, it should be easy to write a time slip. Wrong. Firstly, do I want to be cliched? No. And every time slip, I mean, I'm not going to walk through a cupboard. It's done in Narnia very well. So cupboard gone. And every time slip that I have read is often the same premise. How original is that? I didn't want that. And so to create a time slip which incorporated the symbolism and themes of the whole novel was a humongous challenge. I have to say I really, really wanted to go into a cliché. I did. I just walked through that door, (laughs) knock over everyone, No, and so working that time slip has to be so thought out and it is not about moving from one time to another. It's about taking the themes with you, the characters with you, taking the symbolism till you create something extraordinary and that was hard for me to
1: do. Mm, I love that and I love the honesty of that too because I can understand that that would be very difficult and I was going to ask you about the different types of settings and how much research you had to do and what I'm interested in actually as well as contemporary characters of what they know in their contemporary setting and then throwing them backwards how does that affect everything?
2: Well one of the things that as a writer I always believe in character And not in a boring, you know, how do you write? You must write character, have this hair, that, oh, boring. No, I believe in the heart of character. And character will go through time slips, will go through all kinds of experience as long as there's integrity. And that is why I could move. From two thousand to nineteen forty four, because everyone knows those characters. They're real people. They're your mates, your friends. That you know them, and once you know them, you can go anywhere with them, and that's the true secret. But the other thing, on a technical point, every single thing in a time slip has to be referenced. So if I had Red, you know, rose in the year two thousand in summer because there are different periods: summer, winter. I've got to find a red winter rose in Budapest, Hungary, and I'm doing the research. Where's a re- Yes, they had them, so I could include it. There's bats in Sydney and Australia, and you know where I live. And I thought, oh, there must be bats. Where? Where? Margaret Island, Margaret Island. So. Every single thing in that book is actually validated, checked, double checked until there is a true parallel. One thing in one world equals another thing in the
1: other world. And that was really, really hard to do, actually but fascinating as well and I love that parallels and I wonder how many readers who've read it picked that up or if they just absorbed it you know how you just absorbed those things and that's what made the story enjoyable but I think that's wonderful picking up the themes and the symbols and, and crossing them over in those parallel worlds I love that so much well I have to say
2: that readers and especially young readers They can always pick up a mistake. It's not a radar. I take it. Like if you do the wrong colour, they'll know. So even though I don't expect them to understand my incredible research and checking, I want them to believe me. Yes
1: absolutely and that's when they can get really immersed in that story absolutely and character like you said the heart of the character And i love that i love that once you've got the heart of the character you've got the story and you can take them anywhere i think that's glorious i love that so much
2: but i did do a lot of research i went to hungary with my daughter and i went to find the glass house one of the things in this story is that no one has written about the glass house or very few people you can't really find it so I discovered the glass house because my father mentioned something again in a moment, a lapsed moment. He just mentioned someone was really wonderful in Budapest and he gave them, because my father was part of the youth underground, he gave them some documents that they could use to give false papers to people to say they were Swiss, not Swiss, to say whatever they were. Mm-hmm. And... I thought, who was this person? I mean, I've heard of Wallenberg, Wallenberg. I've heard of I've heard of plenty of people. I don't know this person in Budapest. So I did the research, and there was a man. His name was Carl Lutz. He was the vice Swiss consul and a very committed Christian, and he believed he was put on this earth to do one great act of courage. Wow! And he was sent. In Budapest and of course Swiss were neutral so they represented all the countries who were at war and he was told that he is not to interfere with anything the Nazis and um, the Nazi the Nazis and that party would do. He was told he, he is not to do it. So he arrives in Budapest And he makes the decision to save the Jewish people of Budapest. And he worked with this other man to get the glass house, which was, it became a disused um, commercial glass factory, which had been closed by the Nazis. And what happened was that this got the Swiss Swiss flag on it and it became the glass house. It was a place of the secret underground where these Illegal documents were being made, and also it was the last refuge of the Jewish people. Kids who were being taken, and it, I mean, he and he did one great thing, mm-hmm. and he is now commemorated in Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum in uh, Jerusalem, as one of the righteous.
1: Wow, it's fascinating, it really is. And I love those stories about those individual people who, you know, did things and really made a difference, you know, and I love hearing about those stories because I think it's so important. I was gonna ask you what surprised you about your research, but how can you top that? Was there anything else?
2: There was so much. Oh my research, it surprised me. It surprised me everywhere I went that I could see my parents going to the Hungarian State Opera. My mother played the violin. Because music is so central to, I guess, her culture. And going there and seeing the incredible golden statues and, you know, the staircases that seem to go up and up and up forever. And to think my mother was a girl there playing, it was like um, a heart moment. And, you know, when she came to Australia, You know, she did speak um, German and Hungarian because a lot of Hungarians were bilingual because of the austro hungarian Empire. And she also spoke a bit of French, but not English. And uh, she worked in a factory like my dad did, of course, because they had to rebuild their life. But the very first thing my dad bought her was a second-hand violin to bring music back into our home oh. I just thought you know that was like beautiful and it is imagine I'm sitting there thinking there's my mother there's that little girl you
1: know oh that's beautiful that's really special too that your research became so personal I think I think it's so nice Oh, it just makes the reading the book so much nicer. Hearing all these stories—that's why I love doing this. Because you read the book at one level, and then you get to hear all these stories, and you can read it at a whole different level when you have these conversations. Now, I want to ask you a question. I mean, obviously, it's not a didactic. You know, we don't like things that are didactic. But you know, in a breathtaking race for survival, you know, and the kids have to be heroes, and they need to right wrongs and bring justice to the present future, which is fabulous. But you want kids to enjoy it, obviously. But what? What did you want readers to get out of the book besides just being lost and being and having that escapism? Well, I have an enormous
2: respect for young people and a respect which other people don't get. Young people think so much. Yeah. They are really at that cusp. When I write this, it's that cusp of adolescent search for identity. They're thinking about is there a God? Why are we here? What is my role? They're thinking I'm disempowered or how can I create change? They're at a really exciting and amazing place in their intellectual and emotional development. Such a privilege to write for them. And do you know what? I want them to read this. And for those kids who are younger, often they'll just see the thriller because it is a thriller when you read it it's Yeah, see it. They're rowing. Those kids who are... At that search for identity, they can go back and they can find the answers they need for themselves. You know, how do they feel about their parents? How do they feel about the world? What is their role? And I want them to come out of this with a sense of empowerment. And the reason this is like that is when I grew up as a child, I was very disempowered. I was really frightened of the world. I cried. No one knew. You know, you'd go to school and talk about Vegemite sandwiches and I'd go home and sob for a world at war. There was no one to discuss. No one, like we think a lot, but we can't articulate Mm -hmm. the incredible complexity of the world. And I didn't want anyone, any kid, to feel lost, like I felt, and live this strange life of deception. And do you know what? I want this for the kids who need it or who want it, to partner with them on their value system. I mean, isn't that a privilege? Mm, absolutely. Think, you know, and that's, someone said to me, they said, oh, um, we read the book and when are you going to do an adult book and really grow up? And <laughs> Yeah, you can imagine that goes down well. That's a strange and said, question. Hmm. And I said, when are you going to write it for adults? I said, and why do you do this? And I said, well, I do it for the young people because they're more important than you.
1: that was a good answer Suzanne I like that but you you're not wrong I mean the young people they're you know obviously going to shape our future and you know they're going to be the ones who are going to you know be the people in charge so it's very important to nurture those ideas and I just wish I'd known when I was that age how important that time was because you're just so full of fear and doubt and anxiety but you wish you'd known that this is this is a special time you know when you're learning and developing the world. Look, I'm still learning and developing about the world, but, you know, it's a bit different. (laughs) you know, kids, not
2: every kid will become a leader for change. Not every kid will be Greta Thunberg. Not every kid. But you know what? Enough of of them will understand the issue of values and who they're going to be. Enough of them are going to be following the right path Yeah, they see it. But that book does not tell them what the right path is. I present it. And I empower them. To
1: mm. And like you're saying, I totally agree with you. I don't think you need to be a leader of change. Or you need to be Greta or anything like that. I just think you need to be a person who believes in the good things in the world and then you can pass them on to the people around you and you can bring up your children in that kind of way. And that makes a massive difference. Like that's probably a bigger difference than being a thought leader or whatever, you know, just changing or, or being with those people and and changing those little parts of your world. Because if everyone did that, you know, there's that massive flow-on effect. So I actually think you're spot on. You know, you don't have to be this great leader. Fantastic if you are. But it, it's it's important just being, you know, a human in the world with with good intentions, I think.
2: And I agree. And, I, and as I said, the other thing is I want them to know they're strong mm. in who they are. Yeah. Like they're just going to be strong and it will change the world. And that's a really big issue. Mm. I mean, I sometimes get overwhelmed by the world in fact not sometimes mainly
1: oftentimes.
2: I feel you <laughs> and do you know what I want them to know even if it's a little change if it's a little thing they do it's enough yeah. if we all did that yeah. it's enough and you know I'm hoping and so that's really a really strong
1: driver in everything I write to be mm. honest I love that. I love that so much. Uh, Suzanne, I know you've listened to the podcast because you've said such nice things about it lately. So thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Like I said, it it makes all those hours spent so much, you know, so worth it when people enjoy what they're listening to. So thank you. But you know this question's coming. So Suzanne, why do you write?
2: Okay, why do I write? Well, primarily because I suffer. I know you didn't think I was going to say that, but it is because it I didn't write. How could I work out what's happening? So for me, writing, I thought everyone had a novel in them by the time of year eight. No, they didn't, but I did. And I would write nonstop, not to be a published author. And to be honest, to be a published author is fine, no problem, Um, but that can't be the driver for Mm -hmm. writing. It can't. If you work out ideas, if you create those stories, to share with your family, your friends, yourself. But I became a published author when the greatest tragedy in my life happened. My beautiful father, who I've written Heroes for, he died um, of a terrible brain Mm tumour. And when he died, I remember you know, leaning against the hospital wall and thinking, I can't have this much pain and live. Mm-hmm. And my father gave me a gift, which I'm always grateful for. I suffered so much. And then the gift was I began to write the story of my dad. Wow. And as I wrote them, he settled into my heart and he is in
1: everything. Oh, she's I write <laughs> Sorry, I think I need a moment. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much and just the thought of I can't live with this pain, it's just wow. <laughs> Thank you for making me cry there, Suzanne. That could be a first.
2: <laughs> I'm good at making people know. No,
1: look, I, I we are in lockdown. It's been a pretty flat day for me, so I think this has just topped it off. <laughs> but wow, yeah, absolutely. And I love how you sort of changed that pain and moved that pain into something that you could create something for him and for other people wow and it's extraordinary and I both have my parents still on this planet and I'm thankful every single day but you know I'm an only child and not that that makes a difference I don't think but the thought of you know that time coming is just you know and that's why I related to what you said it's just how do you how do you live with that much pain
2: and you know the thing is, people will give you the cliches. You know, you'll get over it; it'll be fine. And you feel like saying, "I don't want your cliches. I am mm. dying here." Yeah. And you know what? It's such a special thing to translate that love into something positive, and yeah. it honors your parents. Yes, it does. And like, if you're an artist or a musician, just to transform pain into something that is based on growth and understanding, not only for yourself but for others, I just think it's a gift. As I said, my Mm -hmm. father gave me a gift.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that so much. I love all of that so much. (laughs) We went on a lot of tangents there, Suzanne. I didn't expect that answer from you. I was unprepared, but it was really lovely. Thank you. And thank you for being so honest because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard sometimes talking about these things. So I thank you for that. But we seem to do that on this podcast. We seem to just go really deep, really fast. So you didn't disappoint
2: i great to hear that. I love the podcast. So you're doing well. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time, Suzanne. I loved having this chat with you and I loved meeting you the other day and your book is fantastic and hearing about all your research and all the heart that you've put into it and how you wrote it for your father, it just makes it so much more special. So I'm, I'm sure readers are enjoying it too. And the purpose, you know, of you writing it too for young people because young people are amazing. And, you know, I was a teacher for 17 years, a high school teacher, and kids... And young adults, they just remind you about the joy of life because sometimes being an adult's pretty boring, pretty serious, and they just yeah. remind you that, hey, there's joy here, lady. Don't forget. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I love kids and they do always
1: surprise me, <laughs>
2: often annoy me, but I do love them. And sometimes when they're asking people to talk to, you know, thousands of teenagers, a lot of authors are nervous, not me, I'm so happy. That's Love it.
1: And if and if you don't do a good job, they'll tell you. They're not oh, yeah. shy about telling you. Right in the head. <laughs> so if they love you, you know that it's completely authentic. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much, Suzanne. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much.